0: deliberation about where to go. I thought, oh, you know, maybe we'll pick something out of the Old Testament and kind of look through Esther a little bit. And I was like, ah, that's like 10 chapters for like three good messages. That's a lot of reading. Not for me, for you. Um, not that I'm a big reader. That's not what I meant to imply. I'm not off to a good start. Um, but uh, I decided, we're just going to keep going through the New Testament. So if you wouldn't mind turning to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, and uh, just by introduction, uh, Paul is credited by pretty much everyone. It's not debated at all, that he is the author of this. He shares personal details, and he pens that he wrote it. It's the first, uh, widely believed, it's the first letter that he wrote. Uh, So it's believed to be written right around 48 AD. So that puts it 14, 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, is written to Galatia and there is some dispute was it written to the northern churches or the southern churches of Galatia. It seems like the most likely scenario is that on his first missionary journey he stopped in the churches uh, of Galatia and and it was part of uh, some of their creations and that he is writing back to them. So the main uh, gist if you don't mind looking at it in in Galatians chapter 5 it's an interesting letter uh, it's an interesting, it's kind of a mini-Romans, and it has a lot to do with freedom in Christ. What, is, what does it mean that we have freedom? How do we walk in freedom? How do we not walk according to the flesh? These type of things. And it's also a, a letter that combats very similar things that many of his other letters uh, deal with. In this case, it's the, kind of the, the Jesus plus gospel. Uh, it's kind of the Judaizing of the gospel. And so he's going to go all through that, and we'll cover it in time. But in chapter 5, verse 6, this is kind of the, what I'm going to choose uh, as the, kind of the, the contextual lens, if you will, uh, for the, the, the letter. And he says there in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So it seems to be right around day two of the Christian church that people immediately begin to come in with the Jesus plus gospel. A kind of a, the, the, the Jesus plus gospel that we might see today would be, uh, some people would say Jesus plus baptism. right? That is you, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but until you're baptized, water baptized, then you're not actually saved. So it's, 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 it's Jesus plus baptism. Some you might see that uh, there, there can be a shtick that it's, it's Jesus plus the King James Bible. That it's called the Authorized Version, and in 1611, when it was uh, you know, authored by 70 scholars, uh, as it was uh, proclaimed to be by King uh, James himself, uh, that, that that's the official Bible, and anything after that relies too much on newer texts for the translation and things like that. And there's a whole you can read a whole pamphlet on it, if you'd like. But it becomes the, the Jesus plus that. Uh, you have the Jesus plus keeping the Sabbath. Right? You, that, that really, it's about being a vegetarian and keeping the Sabbath. And if you worship on a Sunday, that's actually the mark of the beast. And so you have to worship on a Sabbath. Sabbath being the Jewish Sabbath was Friday at uh, sundown to Saturday at sundown. So that they say it's just plus keeping the Sabbath. Or we can just include the whole law. In this case, the the major thing that Paul's going to talk about over and over and over again is circumcision. And so what happened in Paul's ministry, uh, and we saw it in, in Corinthians, we'll see it when we go through the rest of these, we saw it in Romans, there were people that would follow him around, that he labels as false teachers, and they would say, essentially, that yes, Jesus is a good start, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but... You also need to be circumcised if you're a male. You need to be circumcised or you're not actually saved. You, you need to, and, and it usually was coupled with the dietary laws and the Sabbath law. Um, and that's not too surprising, right? Because in, in general, if you think about it, in Galatians, uh, or I should say the letter to the Galatians, is historically, it's written before the, the, the big convention that they have in Jerusalem. If you remember in Acts 15, the church gets together, right? Who's there? James, uh, the, you know, the, we don't know if all the apostles were there. We don't, like, you know, the Bible doesn't really follow like what happened with Bartholomew or those guys, but, but, but the, 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 the apostles that we're mostly familiar with, they're there, right? You have James, uh, you have Peter, you have Paul. And in the Jerusalem council, in this meeting that they have, do you remember what are they discussing? They're discussing... Fifteen years after the resurrection of Jesus, can Gentiles be saved? That's kind of wild. See, a lot of times we can think to ourselves, and like our eyes roll back into, the, into our heads, and we're like, oh, the, the, the first century church. Just, it was perfect. It was churchy blissfulness. They had everything right. No one really sinned because they were just so dang righteous. Righteous. But remember, the apostles are just figuring it out. Remember, in in the beginning, we might call it the upper room discourse, even though they've already left the upper room. Jesus tells them, this is is awesome to me, Jesus tells them, I have many things to tell you about, but I can't tell them to you right now because you can't bear it. He goes, but if I ascend, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to lead you into all truth. So we can kind of have this idea that like everybody had their stuff together. Everybody had perfect doctrine. They were all using their Bibles that didn't exist yet. And most of the things weren't written for the New Testament. And they just had their devotions every morning. No, they're trying to figure it out. Fifteen years for the church to come to the conclusion. Yes, people that are not Jews can actually go to heaven. Pretty wild, huh? So here's Paul writing to Galatia. And this is before that, that, that uh, council that they have. And he's writing to those churches, and he's trying to preserve, if you will, the sanctity, the, the, the importance of the Jesus plus nothing gospel. That's what he's writing about. And so this argument about circumcision or, or dietary laws or whatever, uh, and, and we may not, probably most of us don't come from a Jewish background, so you've probably never been tempted like, you know what, I'm 35, I just got saved, should I get circumcised? That may not be like an issue. Or, hey, you know what, should I cut out pepperoni because I got saved? Most of us probably haven't wrestled with that. I clearly haven't, right? But the reality is what we wrestle with is we come up with our own stuff. And, and, and it can come from a good place, right? But our stuff typically is like, well, you get saved, but then you, you, you have to have a good devotional life. Because if you don't have a good devotional life, if you're not maintaining that gift that God gave you, then how could you continue to be saved? If you're not faithful, then how could, God, how could you continue to get saved? So, so that means, in my estimation, what we do is we make a law. We say, well, faithful then is uh, 15 minutes of devotion uh, every morning except when the Super Bowl's on. You know, whatever, right? But then if someone else comes along and goes, well, actually, 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 faithfulness is... You go to the church every time the doors are open. That's faithfulness. And then somebody else comes up and says, actually, 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 faithfulness is, you see what I'm saying? It just keeps going and going and going and going. And pretty soon we're so faithful we hate being Christians. Because we're trying so hard to make God love us and approve of us and fulfill the laws that we made that we usually give up. And you meet those people all the time. There's no condemnation in that statement, but you meet them all the time, where they say, oh yeah, I used to go to church. It just got too much. It got to be too much. You're like, really? Going to church got to be too much. How does the grace of God and forgiveness through the blood of Christ get to be too much? It's when we add to it. That's how it gets to be too much. Now, am I saying there's no faithfulness or no call? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that As soon as we attach anything outside of the blood of Christ to salvation, we make it a works-based gospel. And so one of the things that Paul's going to say here, he says, this is no gospel at all. That's not even a gospel. To say that it's Jesus plus something, it's not good news, right? That's what the word means, good news. He says, if you add anything to how a person is righteous before God, then it's not good news anymore. In fact, this is one of his most passionate letters. In chapter 5, He's actually going to say, this is in the Bible. In chapter 5, he's going to say, hey, those guys that are telling you to be circumcised, I wish when they get circumcised, they wouldn't stop at their foreskin. That's in the Bible. It's kind of wild. Not something you usually typically hear on the old Sunday morning, is it? What did you learn at church today? Well... That is what Paul says about this addition of circumcision to the gospel. He says, "I wish this." He says, "I wish they'd cut it all off. They'd emasculate themselves, because they're, they're, this is how terrible of an idea this is." So Paul is very, very passionate about this, and, and it's, we can see that from the very beginning. They call the terms typically as Judaizers, <clears throat> people that they're Jews that either we don't know. Entirely how they came to that conclusion, but came to a conclusion where they said, Well, you, you need all these extra things to actually be saved. And so Paul's saying, No, that is absolutely not the case. So it's, it's, the letter is most likely written from Antioch, uh, not Antioch like we might think of it uh, near Jerusalem, but Antioch of Syria. Uh, so he's, he's probably writing from Syria. <coughs> we know that when he visited Galatia, he was suffering some sort of illness. We don't know what the illness was. We do know, however, that in the end of the, ver- or, excuse me, the end of the letter, when he's addressing them, he says, he's asking them why they're rejecting him now and rejecting the gospel that he has for them now. He says, "Because I know that when I was there, you were willing to gouge out your own eyes, and you would have given them to me if you could have." So evidently there was something wrong with his eyes. He was having some sort of issues, and they received the gospel, and they loved him for the gospel, for the, the good news that he was sharing. That they were willing to to pluck, you know, obviously it's a uh, hyperbole, but they were willing to to do anything for him because they loved him. So this is kind of the backdrop where he shared the gospel, they got saved, they embraced it, but people came along just like they do in our lives, and unfortunately sometimes just like we do in other people's lives, and they said, no, 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 it's Jesus plus something else. So that's where we jump in, and Paul says, here's the thing. The only thing that God's looking for from you is faith that operates or is energized by love. That's what God's looking for. That, that, that we see what he did for us, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago at first John. We see what God did for us, and we, we contemplate and understand in part, right? We see in part. We don't know fully, but we contemplate what he did for us, and that generates a love, right? It generates a care, and so he says, you know what God wants from you? He says, it's not circumcision. Or, he says, being circumcised or being uncircumcised, and that's representative of the whole law, fulfilling the law or not fulfilling the law, he says, that doesn't matter anymore. He says, that, does, that doesn't add up to anything before God. He says, what God is looking for now is for people that have a belief in what Jesus did and in who he is, and that that belief is now operating and, and is, um, if you will, active in a physical sense, also mental, but active through love. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for people that trust him and his righteousness and then in, in understanding that are moving forward in their lives based on loving him and a loving relationship with God. That includes obedience. We're not minimizing that. And, but then is also manifested in love towards others. So with that, we'll, we'll kick off here. We're only going to cover a few verses this morning. Um, in the, the reality of it is that the first two chapters are Paul, uh, in a sense, we kind of looked at it in, in the Corinthians, he's defending his ministry. But in this sense, he's pointing out his ministry to the Galatians that it's from Jesus and not from men. That it was, he wasn't commissioned by any of the apostles. He wasn't commissioned by any of the guys that were commissioned by the apostles. That he himself was commissioned by Christ and that it's recognized by, excuse me, by Peter, by James, and these other Jerusalem apostles. So as we kick off here, that's kind of what's happening As he jumps right in. Also, it's interesting because Galatians is the only letter that he writes where he doesn't have a big section where he says, hey, I'm super thankful for this in your church. I'm super thankful for this in your church. And check this out. And he, he doesn't do that with Galatia. He just jumps right in and says, hey, this is who I am. And these are the issues. And uh, it seems to be uh, pretty pertinent, pretty important. So, Yes. It's okay. Galatians 1. So he says there, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever amen so paul kicks this off and first the first thing he says and this is fairly common he says paul an apostle now the word apostle if you're unfamiliar with it it's the idea of one who is sent with authority like a commissioned person, almost like a deputy, right? You have the sheriff, and then you have sheriff deputies. Sheriff deputies are operating underneath the authority of the sheriff who operates underneath the authority of the law, right? So in the same way, Paul is saying, I am an apostle. I have authority, and we saw that big time in Second Corinthians, right? In First and Second Corinthians, over and over again, he says, remember, it's all in love, but he says, I'm going to have to go there, and I'm going to have to exercise my authority as an apostle, to make sure that you guys aren't accepting uh, this kind of sin in your gathering. It's the same idea here. He loves them, he cares for them, and he says, I'm an apostle. But he says, I'm not sent from men uh, nor by a man. Now, all the Judaizers, who were they sent from? They were sent from either themselves. They just had a burr in their saddle or a burden from the Lord or whatever it might be. And so they decided, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to follow Paul. Now, we know that some of those guys were after money because it could be a free ride, right? If you showed up at the church and you were like, hey, I'm, an, uh, I'm, I'm sent from James or you lied, I'm sent from John. What did the church do? Well, they put you up. They took care of you. They give you food. And remember, this is the time... I don't think we ever want to lose sight of this context, this is a time where 80-90% to 90% of the population, like, honest to goodnessly, historically, their life goal is to get enough calories for the day. Right? This isn't like our society, right? These guys aren't just like jumping in their cars, and then they, they have whatever they have, and they can just drive somewhere, maybe get a little extra. Most people are paycheck to paycheck if they're lucky, right? Most of these people are just trying to earn enough. And we know in Rome, right, Rome at this time is a million people. It's massive. But 250,000 people in Rome get a, a sense of, a, 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 don't know what you want to call it, it's kind of a, a government assistance by getting corn. They got a, a, a little bit of corn every day, right? And, then, and they would take it to bakers, and the bakers would bake their corn. And that's how uh, two, at least 250,000 people in Rome survived, right, during this, this time. So if someone can make an easy living by just following this guy Paul around and saying, hey, I'm here now, yeah, I'm here to help out, and here's the thing, but these are also my beliefs, and they get supported, it's easy to say, okay, well, they want to make money, they want to do these things. So we don't know all the motivations. But Paul's saying, look, even though he's going to validate his ministry that (coughs) the apostles do approve of him, and we'll see how he does that next week, he's saying, I am not, and I have not been, appointed By a human being. He's saying, Christ appeared to me. And that's the history he's actually going to give in the second half of chapter 1 that we'll cover next week. He's saying, Christ appeared to me. He's saying, I was in Arabia for three years. And when I was there, Jesus was teaching me himself. That's where I learned the gospel. That's where I learned about how it works. That's why I was able to write a treatise like Romans. Because, again, not to beat a dead horse, they don't have the Bible, right? So Paul didn't learn it from reading. He didn't learn it because of things. it was straight from God. Now, they have the Old Testament, and that's what he taught of, and he quoted it all the time as he wrote his uh, New Testament-type stuff. But he starts by saying, look, I'm an apostle. I'm sent from God, right? And he says, I'm sent from Jesus, by Jesus Christ and from God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, this is also interesting because th- uh, this is the only time in the book of Galatians, or in the letter to the Galatians, that the resurrection is mentioned. This is the one time. And it's, Paul here is pointing to, again, to his ministry, and if you will, the uh, it's, it's, I w- taking a shot would minimize it. He's not taking a shot at Gnostics, but he's, in a sense, slipping in truth that is contrary to Gnostics. And so he's saying, I was sent by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who was resurrected from the dead, right? Because there was also, not only is there legalism that's being passed around, there's a whole other idea that's being passed around, kind of a spiritualist idea that, All matter is evil, so therefore, this is kind of a philosophical idea of the day, all matter is evil, and so therefore, if all matter is evil, Jesus could not have been in a body, so Jesus wasn't in a body, he was never bodily resurrected, right? So it was kind of a philosophical argument to the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul's saying, look, the same Jesus that was raised from the dead by the Father is the same Jesus that sent me and gave me the gospel that I'm sharing with you, all right? (coughs) Excuse me. He goes from there and he says, And all the brothers and sisters with me. Now, your your, uh, Bible may say brothers. Uh, It's a difference between Delphi and Delphos in the Greek. Um, That sounds much more impressive than actually looking at it. It's pretty bland. The point is, the, the word there is a word in Greek that is like the family. The brothers and the sisters of the family. So if you're wondering, like, well, why does the NIV, and I'm addressing this because I've heard it. I've heard people say this. Well, the NIV tries to use these pronouns because it's trying to pander to whatever person. No, it's using those pronouns because the board of directors of the NIV decided that when they use the word uh, Delphos in other places, that this is what it means. And so it's an inclusion. I like to use it because there is a lot of people that come off the street and think, oh, the Bible hates women and Paul hates women and these type of things. And so I think it's refreshing that somebody can say, no, Paul's saying, all the brothers and sisters that were with me, they are also, in a sense, validating that this message that I have is real. And you think about, like, Phoebe, right, And then in Romans chapter 16, where Paul writes and says, make sure Phoebe gets everything she needs when she shows up at your church, because she's helped me tremendously in my ministry, right? Uh, you have uh, Lydia, in Ephesus, who is is very well-off uh, merchant of, of purple, right, of dye, and she is able to facilitate a church. You have Mark's mom uh, that facilitates the early church when, when Peter gets out of prison. And where does he go? He goes to Mark's mom's house, right? So plenty of women in prominent places in the scriptures that are helping out the servants of God. There are servants of God, right? So that's, that's why I like to define that, because I think it's important. He's going to use that term all through the rest of this letter, and he uses it in all the letters. So he says, all these people with me are also, there for you. And he says, to the churches in Galatia, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, again, it's his standard greeting, right? But there's really nothing standard about it. So he's using the, the greeting of the Jews, right, which is shalom peace to you, right? You see someone in the old Jewish bazaar there in the Jewish quarter of Rome, and, hey, shalom, you know, how are you? And then the Greek, uh, the Greek greeting is charis, uh, favor be upon you. Now, their greeting was a little bit different, right, because they were polytheists. So when the, when the Roman or the Greek were to say, hey, charis to you, they're saying, like, the grace of Zeus be upon you, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, the grace of whomever. So they're, they're coming from a polytheistic point of view. So what Paul has done is he's taking that Jewish greeting and he's taking that, uh, the Greek or the Roman greeting and he's merged them. And it's no longer about you know, the grace of Zeus or the you know, grace of whomever, the prophet of Delphi or whatever, be upon you. It's the idea of God's grace. So favor, right? Favor and peace be upon you. And we've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to just uh, rehash all this stuff from 1st or 2nd Corinthians. But the, to make the point... Uh, here again, by the Holy Spirit, Paul is addressing this church, and this is his goal. Grace and peace. Right? That's the goal in his address. And it's so important that when we're addressing anyone, in any conversation, it can be, hey, will you pass the catch-up? But in any conversation, that our goal, that our heart is, hey, favor and peace be upon you. The words that I want to share with you, I want them to bring you peace, and I want them to bring you favor. That you will that you will continue to embrace and not be wavered from the favor and the peace that God gives you, because we can say a lot of things. We can even say godly things, but if we don't say it in that vein, it's not going to come away that way, isn't it? We can be say something like, "Hey, I, you know, I, how you been doing? I, I've, it's been a while since I've seen you at church. Are you are you doing okay? Is everything okay, right?" Or we can be like, "Why were you at church? It's been like a month. Are you just too busy for Jesus." Is that what's going on? Football a little too important? <laughs> right? Preseason's over? You know what I'm saying because we've all either done it or had it done to us. One thing communic- communicates grace and peace. I missed you at church because I just hope that you're doing well. I hope that you're walking in the favor, that, you, that you're enjoying and experiencing the favor that God has for you and the, and the peace that he has for you through what Jesus did, right? The other is, I'm annoyed because I went to church. I did the good works and you didn't. And now I don't like that. And so I'm going to take it out on you. And I'm going to use guilt. I'm going to use shame and I'm going to use all the things the world uses to try to get you to come back to church. And then you may come back to church because I manipulate you with my negative uh, words and, and, and attitude, and then you come, and then you get ticked off that you're here because you don't want to be here, and then you actually end up leaving in a huff. Right? Isn't that what happens to us? When someone mistreats you at church, When someone's, you, you're, you're, your instinct is not to go, I really want to go back to that place. I'd like to experience that again. Right? Your instinct is like, yeah, I think I'll go to one of the other 22 churches that isn't full of jerks on the peninsula. Right? Isn't that kind of our attitude? I'm not here to debate if that's right or wrong. It's just how human beings work. So I, I don't think we want to leave out the fact that when Paul uses this greeting, it's inclusive to every, peop- every people group that he's writing to. I know inclusive is a scary word for us, but it's just, it's a, he, he's just trying to outreach to everyone that's going to read this. And his heart for them is grace and peace, regardless of who they are. Again, we're not making any commentary of the need for repentance from sin. Obviously, there's a need for repentance from sin. That's what he wrote the whole book about, the whole letter about. But when we we talk to people, when we write to people, we want to help people, it's so important that right from the get-go, you don't have to say the words grace and peace. That might be a little weird, but you could if you wanted to. But you want to communicate in a way where this person knows, I have nothing but favor for you. I favor you. I want good for you. I want you to find peace. I just happen to know by the grace of God, it only comes by the grace of God. So we share it in that way. So he writes to them and he says, number one, he says, it's from this grace and peace, it's from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's making the point here where this is not just a Jesus thing, that grace is from the Father. And it's going to go on, right? Because at the end of verse 4, he says, This is all these things that he's asking for, that he desires for them, is according to the will of God and our Father. See, God's will for human beings is that we would experience his favor and his peace. His favor and peace and the way he's prescribed that we experience it, it's not limiting. A lot of times we can look at the prohibitions, the things that God says no to, and we're like, oh my goodness, are you serious? Why can't I watch this? Why can't I drink that? Why can't I smoke this? Why can't I, you know, fornicate with that? Why can't I do this? You know, and we have all, we go, oh, all these prohibitions, they're so limiting. But if we were honest with ourselves, when we involved our th- ourselves in those things, if we did, they were actually quite limiting, weren't they? They filled us with anxiety. When we came down from, from whatever we were uh, up on, it was emptiness. It was, it was dust and ashes, Right? So here's, here's Paul, and here's this, this communication that he's giving. He's saying, look, God's will for you is not to limit you. It's not to rob you. It is, in fact, to bless you and to grace you with the life that satisfies, with the life that doesn't end. It's, it's why it's called eternal life through Christ. It's both eternal in quality and in quantity. And so he's, he's inviting us into that. But this, in verse 4, he says this. He says, Let me read verse 3 again. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. So Christ gave himself for our sins. Now, most of us are probably pretty familiar with the gospel, the good news. That's what gospel means. The good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul, writing to Galatia, now we know because we've talked about a little bit of context, they don't know it yet, right? Because they would just be reading this letter in their church. But Paul knows, and the foreshadowing he's making here, is that it was Christ who gave himself. That he was the perfect sacrifice. That he was everything that was needed for the debt to be paid for sin. If we look at Isaiah 53... Many of us may be familiar with this, but it seems uh, still probably worthy to read. It just seems like in a world that from the very beginning, we've tried to add things to the gospel. I'm not saying you have. I don't know you. But it just sneaks in, it seems like. And it seems like it just sneaks into every single one of us. And if, if I'm assuming about you and you haven't, then I respect that and please forgive me. But I think many, many, many of us have a closet legalist inside of us that just says there's no way the grace of God can be enough. There's no way that it could actually be a gift. There's no way that, that God's judgment upon Jesus is actually what forgives me. It has to be something else. But that's what we're taught. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. We live in a, in a meritocracy, right? In other words, we live in a world where merit reigns. And that's a good world to live in, Right? Can you imagine having to hire people not on a merit-based scenario? That would be a nightmare. Like, we would like to hire you to be our surgeon. Oh, you didn't go to med school? That's cool. Have you ever seen like a soldering iron and an X-Acto knife? All right, we're in. No. You don't, that's not who you want as your surgeon, right? You want that man or woman who went to school for like 90 years, Right? And they step into the room and they're like, this is the thousandth time I've done this. And I've never had a comeback. That's who you want, right? So living in a, in a merit-driven world is not a bad thing. But we can't take the merit-driven world that we live in and apply it to the gospel. Because there's no merit in the gospel. The only merit is Christ. All right? So as soon as we try to take any of that merit to ourselves, uh, whether it's based on how we've been raised, or based on society, or just ingrained in our, in our fallen nature, whatever it might be, we have to leave merit at the foot of the cross. We have to leave it there. As soon as we pick up merit, in any kind of fashion, we enter into legalism. We enter into self-righteousness. Amen. I make myself righteous because I do X, Y, Z. And the only practical application to that is if someone isn't doing X, Y, Z, well then clearly they can't be righteous like me. Right. That's always the, that's the aftermath of that. So if it says that Christ gave himself for us. There's a, a great explanation here. There's a lot of good explanations. But this really brings kind of a, a bird's eye view of what was going on between the father and pe- between Jesus and between us. And so Isaiah writing. And, and I'd like to draw attention to the fact that, number one, this is in past tense. And it's, a, it's a prophecy it was given hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the earth, and it's in past tense. I'd also like to note, if you're, if, if you're new to the Bible this morning, it can be tempting to go, well, gee whiz, somebody wrote something on page 896, and it came true on page 1425. That's not very hard to do in a book, right? I'm a fan of fantasy books, and I've read The Wheel of Time, and there's tons of prophecies about what's going to happen but it was all written by the same guy over the course of like, well, that's not entirely true. The last three books were written by some other guy. But anyway, because he died. but (laughs) The point being is that the Bible is 66 books written by 44 authors over the course of, I don't know, what, 2,000 years? Later, 2,500 years? So when one guy writes in Isaiah, or when one guy writes in the Psalms, the Psalms is a good example, Psalm 22 where you have David writing about the crucifixion, exactly what happens physically in crucifixion, in Psalm 22, 600 years before the Persians invent it, and another three or 400 years before the Romans decide to adopt it. So when Psalm 22 is written, it's written before anyone even knows what crucifixion is. And it's the same what we have here. This is not someone, the same author that wrote this, and then later on was like, oh, okay, that's right, I wrote that, who has some like, big weird board with ribbons going everywhere at his house. This is the Holy Spirit. And it's written in, in past tense, hundreds of years before Jesus would even be on the scene. Jesus couldn't even, if he was just a man, he couldn't even try to have fulfilled these things. There was no way to arrange it. And so here's this prophecy that's given by Isaiah, and he, he makes the point we'll, we'll read the, from the beginning there in 53:1. He says, "Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that is the Messiah, he grew up before him, that is the Father, like a tender shoot, and out of a root, uh, excuse me, and like a root, out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, a man familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Isn't that interesting? Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's interesting that like all those pictures of Jesus being like this ripped dude on the cross, who he's like the Fabio of saviors or something. It says that he was not attractive. He he looked like someone that most of us would want to turn our eyes away from. He wasn't externally, he wasn't, you know, a hot guy. He was a Jewish dude that bumped around Rome, or a uh, Roman-occupied Judea. And when people looked at him, they despised him. It's pretty wild to me. So he goes on from there, and he said, after his physical description, he says, surely he took up our pain. So what does it mean That Jesus came for our sins. Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Obviously, there's a lot in all of these. You know, it's interesting... Because notice he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. So there's, there's three words in, the, in Hebrew and there's actually three words in Greek in the New Testament for sin. For what we would just call generically sin. Trespasses is like the idea that you ventured where you shouldn't have gone. right? Just like we have no trespassing signs. It means you, you can't go there. You shouldn't go there. You don't, you don't belong there. That's what a trespass is. A trespass is like the idea that uh, you wandered onto your neighbor's land and you ripped off one of their goats or something. That would be a trespass. Uh, and there's and there a, there a sacrifice. You had to return the goat, and you had to actually return 20% more of its value. Right? That was the litical law on something like that, on a trespass like that. And then you would go to, uh, you would, you would go to uh, the priests and sacrifice um, for a sin offering. Right? And it's kind of interesting how that would all work. But anyway, um, when it says here iniqu- iniquity, which is the word avon or ava, when it says the word iniquity... Uh, David used this word in the Psalms, and it's often translated the high-handed sin. You know, we, we have that saying, like, talk to the hand, right? So the iniquity is the idea of it's rebellion, that no, I'm not going to do that. So you have trespasses, and then you have another word that kind of means to trick or to deceive someone, and then you have iniquity. Uh, and it literally, actually, iniquity literally means uh, perverse or bent. is what, And that's why you see... Uh, all over the place, like, for example, John the Baptist, when he's saying, repent and make straight the paths of the Lord, that's a play on the Hebrew word iniquity, meaning stop having bent ways and make a straight path. You'll see in the Old Testament, many of the prophets say uh, their iniquity will be upon their heads. Are you you're familiar with that? And that's the idea that, that this, this perversion, this bentness, it gets so bad that it crushes the individual. Okay? So that's what uh, "ava" or avon is. So the interesting thing about iniquity is there was, no, uh, there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant law to bring for committing iniquity. Does that make sense? There was a lot of ones you could bring, but there was no sacrifice for iniquity. In other words, you, you couldn't be like, yeah, you know what? I knew I shouldn't have uh, hit that dude. I knew I just... I, or whatever, fill in the blank. I knew I shouldn't have ripped that person off, or I knew I just knew it, God was speaking to me, and I, and I, and I just did it anyway. That's iniquity. It's rebellion. I had to, so there's no sacrifice for that. And you had the, the, the Day of Yom Kippur and stuff like that, but the point is iniquity was always only forgiven by the coming blood of Christ. That's the only way that iniquity could ever be forgiven. But here's the deal. He was crushed for our iniquities. So if, if iniquity is directly going against God's law in a rebellious spirit. Christ took that for us. See, we can start to think like, well, if a person rebels, then, you know, mm, I don't know. I don't think they get to stay saved. That's weird. Because the Bible says that all of our rebellion and our iniquity, that Jesus was crushed for it. So, in the idea that he was sent for our sin, he completely paid for, and and adjudicated our sin away, 100%. So he goes on from there, though, and he says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of, this, of his generation protested? In other words, he's making the point here that it, it, was, a, it was a mock trial. It was, there was no justice in it. It was ridiculous, but no one was there to raise a, to raise a voice or a hand to say, oh, you should stop. It's, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And that was fulfilled, Right? He ended up with a a rich man's grave because of Joseph of Arimathea. So he ended up in a grave where no one, a a nice grave, a a, a cave, not just a hole outside of Jerusalem or an an unmarked grave. So that was fulfilled. It's incredible. (laughs) The prophecies that were fulfilled all these hundreds of years later. And he goes on from there and he says, and this is uh, relating back to what we read there. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the Lord, uh, excuse me, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So we he even goes so far this prophet Isaiah, led by the Holy Spirit, hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, is led to say, and this is crazy, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is what God wanted. It's kind of hard to imagine, I think, sometimes. But just like we read there in Galatians, that grace and peace and this, this idea, this deliverance that God has for everyone, it's God's will. It's what he wants. In Ezekiel, we're told that he wants the, the wicked to repent from his way. In Second uh, Peter, we're told that he is patient, that God is patient. So have you ever wondered, why does the world just keep going the way it is? It's funny because we always go, why doesn't God stop those people? We never say to ourselves, why doesn't God stop me? I need to be stopped. I'm a wicked person. And I do wicked stuff. I need to be stopped. No, it's always, it's always those people. Stop those people, God. Stop them. Well, you want to know why God doesn't stop it? Why he doesn't end it? Because he's patient. And it says that he's not willing that any should perish. God does not want anyone. There's never been a person on the planet where Jesus said, I really want that person to perish. We do that. (laughs) If this person would perish, my life would be perfect, right? If I didn't have to deal with this anymore, if this person never called me again, if they could just perish, that would be so nice. Jesus has never said that. There's never been anyone where he was like, I wish this person would finally perish so I can send him to hell. It's never happened. And so it's, it's wild when we begin to think that Christ, it was God's will. And, and some translations say it pleased him. Not that God is a sadist and he just had to get us. He was just so mad that he had to you know, punch the wall. It's that he, before we were even created, knew we would bite the hand that feeds us. And so he made a plan. Right? What Ephesians 1 tells us that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. So, before human beings take their first step or eat their first apple or whatever, Christ already knows. This is in past tense. It hasn't even happened yet, and it's in past tense. That God is all, He always was pleased to crush His Son. He was always pleased to judge Jesus for what we had done. It was always His intention. So, you and I, I mean, when we read in Galatians 1 that he sent his son for our sin to rescue us from this evil age, it really is a pretty incredible idea. Right? A, pretty, a pretty incredible truth that God, I don't, I don't know how it happens, but somehow in our minds we think, he's pleased to crush me. He's pleased to thwart me. He, in fact, it even tells us in Lamentation, it does not please a man. It does not please God to thwart a man in his way. Like God doesn't get kicks from, he's not like the gods of Olympus that toy with mortals' lives, right, in mythology. He's the God who loves and the, the God who cares and the God who has a plan to deal with sin and he always did and he executed it perfectly so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and continue to be saved and to continue to walk with God. That's what he did. And, and, and this was always his will. He wanted to do this. So it's, it's a pretty incredible thing. We begin to break it down to think God wants to save you. And if you've received him as, and, and, and you know him this morning, that you're saved this morning, that's what he always wanted for you. And he's so glad that you're saved. He's so glad that you're learning to walk with him and to be with him. He's so glad that you're learning what obedience is. He's so glad that you have his Holy Spirit to lead you, to guide you, to comfort you. So why all this bad stuff? When uh, There's a lot of reason. But the reality is, if we had zero complications in life, if there was zero fallout from our sin, what are spoiled children like? Are they fun to be around? Is it fun to be around a spoiled kid? Is it fun to be around someone who's never experienced any discipline in their entire life? Not usually. Usually it's a nightmare. Right? Usually you're just like, I know I'm supposed to love children, but mm, I'm glad that's not my kid. Right? If we're truth about it. The, the evil and the difficulties that occur in this life Remind us of what he said in Galatians 1. This is, this is something, we, man, it's huge. He has gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. The age, and it's the, it's the word ion or aeon. It's translated forever quite a few times. It's it's the idea of this, the time that we live in. If you're a dispensationalist, it would be this New Testament dispensation. The last age until Christ comes, right? Or the church age. This is an evil age. And it's hard for us to see sometimes because most of us have pretty decent lives, right? Most of us are probably going to go home to a roof over our head. And if you're not, come talk to us because we'd love to help you. But most of us are probably, we're going to get tacos... Right. And then if we want, we'll probably eat again tonight. Right. And then if we want, we might get up and uh, raid the fridge at 11. Right. I don't know about you. I have four pairs of pants. I have four pairs of pants. I could wear any of those pairs anytime I want. I have a pair of shoes for working in the yard. And I have a pair of shoes that I can wear to church. I have flip-flops. They're just shoes simply for comfort. To think that, that we have lives like this. It's absolutely incredible. It's, ins- it's just nuts. And if you go look in our fridges, most of us, is probably not rice and corn with maybe a sweet potato or something in there. I don't know about you guys, but we have those, you know, probably going to cause us cancer but not make us fatter ice drinks. Right? They're full of flavor. I love them. I don't drink the well water that I have that tastes like iron. Like, we have incredible lives. Incredible lives. But you know what comes along and reminds us that these lives are temporal? Cancer. I've met people, there's a lady, she doesn't go to the church anymore, they moved away. She had a massive stroke during that huge storm in 07. Massive stroke. The fire district, uh, couldn't get, they couldn't get a, a, a helicopter up. The, it was too windy for the fixed wing to fly. And so she ended up getting ground pounded all the way to like it was some far east. It, was, it wasn't even, uh, I think, the, the cath lab here at the manual or whatever it is. And so she lost a bunch of skills. She had to relearn how to, they actually had a, she said they had a, like a fake kitchen and a fake bedroom and all these different things at the hospital. She had to relearn how to fold towels relearn how to, how to use a stove, relearn some speech. And we were just talking about it one day because she didn't really like to talk a lot because she was embarrassed because she would forget words and so she didn't really talk a lot in public and stuff like that. She's a neat lady. They had us over for dinner a couple times. And she said one time she said to me, she goes, you know what, James? She goes, I wouldn't trade that stroke for anything in the world. She goes, because I've experienced Christ so close to me when I was in that fake kitchen. And I, spe- I experienced his comfort like I've never experienced it before. Because it was just incredible. Because I wouldn't trade that stroke for the world. So why God is able to use all things together for good. And the more we try to escape bad, in, in a sense, like not like 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 pull away from it, it's it just doesn't work. So what is this evil age? I mean, overall, the evil age, it, it can be a term that's used in the Bible for uh, like um, this world. It's also translated, translated world sometimes. The, the, like, for example, that uh, Satan is the god of this world. Right? He's the god of this age. Um, the whole world lies in the arms of the evil one, out of 1 John. So it's this idea that it's not just, it's, it's not just a, a timeline, but it's, it's when and where and, and kind of the wind, the, the pattern of this world. That's what he's saying. That he rescued us from that. And we have to understand... It's, it's, we can enjoy things right money is not evil it's fine to enjoy money but it's not, it's not supreme I was reading this week and I'm not just trying to harp on money but I just was in my own um, oops my own private times I was, I was just reading in Job because uh, I read Job a long time ago and it just seemed really confusing to me because it's like four dudes talking and like three of them are wrong and one of them is right so it can be a little bit of a confusing book because you're like, well, I feel like he's making some good points, but then Job says he's a moron, so I'm not really sure. you got to love Job, too, because when he's talking to his friends, he literally he addresses one of his friends and he says, I understand that wisdom will die with you, but you should listen to me. <laughs> you're like, I feel like I shouldn't say that, but I like that he did. <laughs> so, he's just what Job, he's talking about. His friends are like, dude, you got to repent. That's why all this bad stuff is happening. And Job's just like, no, it's not. It's happening. I don't even know why it's happening. I just want it to stop. That's basically what Job is saying for like 20 chapters. (laughs) But he says there in verse 24, if I put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune of my hands had gained. Then these would be sins to be judged, for I would have I have been I would have had, I would have been unfaithful to God on high. And this, this kind of hit me this week. Just for me personally, I'm not making any commentary on anybody else's life, but it's like, do I ever look at gold and say, "You are my security"? It's an interesting, interesting idea. Do I ever look at gold and See, I rejoice in my great wealth, the fortune my hand has gained. Is that how I look at wealth? Because he says, if I did that, he says, I'd have to repent. And this is Job, not one of his weird friends. So I, it's, again, I'm not trying to pick on money. I'm just saying that, that for this week, it was like, wow, that's really, that's a good word. There's no security in money. The security is in the Lord, Right? To be rescued from the present evil age. What else is going on in our age? Where Our, our age says that we deal with problems by verbal assault. Right? Our age says that if someone disagrees with us, we cut them out of our life, we ignore them. Our age tells us that uh, if I have conflict, that I run away from it, I don't deal with it. No, I'm not talking about conflict where someone's actually trying to assault you, but conflict in my life to work through problems with my family and my church, whatever it might be. So we live in we live in an evil age, and although there's fun things to do, right? You can whitewater raft, or garden, or you know, basket weaving, whatever you want to do. It's still an evil age, and we got rescued from it, and we don't want to go back to it. We've been rescued from money being our security. We've been rescued from having to smack talk people to feel good about ourselves. We've been rescued from having to be fulfilled with drink or drug or uh, Netflix. We're rescued. If we don't want to go back to those things, as some sort of primary resource in our lives because they're empty, they're dust and ashes, they're wind. And so, you know, Paul, just kicking off this letter, he's sharing this incredible gospel, this incredible forgiveness that comes through Christ. And he's sharing this incredible hope, hoping and expectation, not just a desire, but this incredible expectation that we have that God is always going to move on our behalf, that he's always going to work things out for good if we let him that he's always got our best in mind, that he's never wanted judgment or destruction on anyone, but he will execute it on those who reject him, that his heart for us is a heart of peace and of love and of grace. And we've been rescued. We don't have to go to the world's things for our satisfaction or for our value. We run to Christ because he has it all for us. So we have the communion. It's just an opportunity to remember him. You know, in in Luke, we won't turn there, but in Luke, there's just a fantastic line there when it's the, Jesus tells the fellas, I think it's Luke 21, 22, he tells the fellas, he says, uh, says, go and talk to this guy and just tell him the master has need of your place. That's the not King James version. (laughs) He goes, go talk to that dude and uh, just tell him, when he says, what are you doing here? (laughs) Why are you in my house? Just tell him that the master has need of it. And uh, which would take some faith in itself, but they do that, and so they go and they prepare uh, the, the the Passover, right? And so for every Jew, for all time, what did the Passover represent? It represented God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, right? It was a celebration. Of the blood of the lamb, that they that they put the, the blood of the lamb on a doorpost. It is a remembrance. Remember, they have to eat it with bitter herbs. They have to eat it dressed with their walking staves in their hand, staves in their hand. And they I mean, just imagine how funny that would look. The whole family is just chilling there at this table with the with this sheep that they've dressed, and they're all sitting there with staves and with their outer garments on. Like, okay, eating with one hand. Like, what's with the bitter herbs? Why do we have to do that? Oh, because we have to remember what you know. Whatever. So that's what the Passover was, right? And he goes now. Jesus, says, I want you to get the Passover ready, and then he completely redefines the Passover for life to these Jewish guys. Imagine how difficult that would be. But he says, no, 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 no. He says, here's now. Now, when you eat this, he says, here's how I want you to remember me. He goes, when you eat the bread, right? Because they already had the, the, the Passover. So They've eaten a ton of other stuff. But he goes, but when you eat this bread, when you, when you eat the bread together, from from here on out, when you do this, because I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that my body was given for you, that my life was given for you, right? And not like as like a, a manipulative parent, like, just remember that you know, we took care of you for... No, it's, it's not that. It's not manipulation or guilt. It's, it's care, right? Isn't that everything we've read? It was the will of the Father to cross Jesus. It was, it was his... Uh, we read in Hebrews that it, there was a joy set before him that caused him to disesteem or despise the shame of the cross. It was, it's because it's he loves you, because he cares about you. So he says, I want to give you something so that you can remember how much I love you. I want to give you something so you can remember that my Father and myself felt that you as our creation is worth my life, is worth my pain and my suffering. I want you to remember that my whole existence on this planet, in this likeness of sinful flesh, as Hebrews tells us, it was for you. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of thankfulness. It's not a time of of guilt or of shame or concern in that sense. And then he says, when you you drink the wine, when you drink this cup, we have grape juice, uh, he says, look, I want you to remember this new covenant I'm making through my blood. That might seem a little weird for us, right? Because we're common variety Gentiles. But as a Jew, that was a huge point, because they had always sacrificed animals, right? Bulls and goats and pigeons, if you're poor, right? You, they, they, they give animal sacrifice. And again, this is so key, because in, in the Old Testament, the word that's used is, is uh, uh, atoned, right? That, it, that, that blood of bulls and goats, it atoned for sin. It literally means in the Hebrew, it's smeared. It's smeared over sin. And we know from Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats, it never forgave sin. It never did. People were always based on, even though they are making animal sacrifices, the animal blood atoned for sin. It smeared over sin. It covered sin. But those sacrifices always looked to the forgiveness of Jesus' blood. And so he says, now I'm changing this. It's not about the blood of the literal lamb anymore. You don't go to the law anymore. He says, now when you drink this, when you drink this wine, you consider that it's my blood that's made a new covenant. No more is it the blood of bulls and goats. No more is it do and live as the old covenant was. Now it's trust me. Now it's receive what I have for you. So the the whole point of the communion, it's not a, a somber time of, oh man, I just hope I don't die like Corinth. It's the idea of remembrance. Thank you, Lord, that you loved me. Thank you, Lord, it was, it was, Father, it was your will to crush your son for me. That's just, that doesn't, I don't know about you, but I don't know how to explain it, but there's like this little mental block portion in my head where I think it, and I'm still just like, mm. just because your scripture says it everywhere, I'm not really sure about that. There's like this little token of unbelief, like I can't, can't quite get it out of my mind. But it's the truth. It's what the scripture says Everywhere. There's no place where it contradicts that. There's no place where it's actually like, well, actually, mm, you need to try really hard too. It's all just based on the blood of the lamb. That he forgave sin by his blood, and he's got a new covenant for us. And that new covenant is based on, as all the covenants are, his love and his desire for human beings. Now, Paul warns us, and he warned the Corinthians is there's a context there, because they were getting drunk at the potlucks, and then they would have communion, and they would partake drunk after despising poor people and a lot of other weird stuff. And he makes the point to them that you need to consider your life. He says, "To Corinth, he says, "The reason people are dying in your church because you're partaking unworthily." So that's pretty heavy. Right? That's a pretty heavy idea. But Paul gives them a very easy remedy. He says, "Just examine your heart." And he says, if there's, if there's something in your life where you can acknowledge, I need to sin, then deal with it. Repent of it. He says, repent of that. And, and, and he says, and so eat. The emphasis in the Greek is, yeah, just repent and then eat, partake, be part of this. Not, oh, you better take a month off and you better, you know. No, the emphasis is like, be honest with God and then remember how much he loves you and remember the deal that he made with you through his blood, that he would save you by faith. And so we just have that opportunity. So the worship team's going to come up and Uh, sing a couple of songs and we get to sing along with and I just encourage you if you're new with us we try to do like a rotation thing where you come up this way and then around the back otherwise it's just crazy Um, but uh, just to take an opportunity to consider ourselves consider our souls and remember him and proclaim his death until he comes as he says there in 1 Corinthians 11 Father thank you for your great kindness to us thank you for the gospel the good news thank you for Uh, using our brother Paul, speaking through our brother Paul. Thank you that these words were successfully preserved for uh, 2,000 years. So we get to read them today. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness to us and how you've been so generous to us. We acknowledge, Lord, you've never done something wrong. It's never happened. And Lord, we thank you for our sufferings. Thank you for our difficulties. Thank you for having mercy upon us when we've brought it upon ourselves. And Lord, thank you for letting us bear the consequences sometimes when we brought it upon ourselves. But Lord, we, we praise you that your, that your will is that none should perish, that your will was to crush your son for us, and that your will is that we would have fellowship with you. And we look forward to that now and really once we see you how you really are. So thanks, God, for being good to us. We appreciate it in Jesus' name. Amen.